I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet today. For us, it's the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, and we'd like to extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and extend the respects to the elders and custodians of the lands upon which all of us are meeting here today. Today, artivism has been used to rebel against patriarchy, governments and institutions which threaten human rights. Fashion and art have been used to tell stories and complex messages to the wider audience across the globe. In occupied Palestine, creatives have harnessed the power of fashion to protest the military occupation in the West Bank. We ask, what is intersectional feminism and how does fashion and art intersect with human rights? Today, we are joined by Yasmin Majali, founder and creative director of Nol Collective, the intersectional feminist organization located in occupied Palestine. From Amnesty Australia, I am Finn Spalding. And I am Anita Nair, and this is Anytime Amnesty. Actually, before I start, I wanted to make a point. So I struggle a lot with this, trying to figure out how to refer to to people, you know, whether you're indigenous, you're people of color, you're global south, there's so many ways to talk about it. Um, I know no one's ever really satisfied with the way they choose to talk about it, but I did come across uh, a book recently in which the writer, Sandus Abdul Hadi, who is an Iraqi American curator, artist, writer, she tried to tackle it. And I think I'll be using her phrase throughout this chat, but I just really want to quickly read it because she just puts it so well. Yeah. So she writes, because such phrases that I mentioned earlier uh, imply that we cannot exist if not in relation to white supremacy. I use the phrase deeply rooted in place of words that identify us as inferior, marginal, or secondary to whiteness. I use this word to describe the multiplicity of ethnicities who are connected, not just through struggle, but through deeply rooted ancient identities, familiar spirits, and shared experiences of resistance to white supremacy and colonialism. So to answer your question, what is Noel Collective? Noel Collective, we're an intersectional feminist and political fashion collective based here in Palestine. Uh, so we manufacture everything here with family-run businesses and women's cooperatives, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. So the, the goal of this is to, is to support local production, talent, craftsmanship. And the, the mission for us is to illustrate the political, social, and economic frameworks of those who, who create our clothes, right? And so the mission is to actively challenge how we're producing this like global standard of production, how we're engaging with fashion, how we're buying fashion, and trying to dismantle this contemporary relationship between producer and consumer. How do you see fashion and art as political and why are they political? Um, I get this question a lot and I guess it's, it's, the way I understand it is that art is political and fashion is art, right? So the reason for that is that it gives way to this 
it gives way to this interconnectedness between peoples, right? You're combining the per- the production chain is combining people all over the world, whether or not it's obvious when we when we see the final garment. And often these these relationships are asymmetrically designed. They're asymmetric relationships of power and exchange. So for example, three-fourths, like 80% of garment workers in the world are just women working in these terrible conditions. They're underpaid and they're even exposed to sexual harassment and assault. You know, this makes it an inherently feminist issue, for example. Countries with power get to dictate what's progressive fashion and what's oppressive fashion, you know, even using this as an excuse to invade and destroy entire nations, as we see with the Middle East quite often, and as we saw with colonialism not too long ago, you know? Uh, Groups in power appropriate clothing to profit off indigenous people's culture and inherently kind of erasing it, as is the case with, for example, Israel appropriating the Palestinian kofiyeh and tatris. So in many ways, and these are just a few examples, I mean, fashion gets political in so many ways, but it really is a function of power relations. And I guess as the creative director, when you look at, say, for example, like how Israel appropriates Palestinian culture, what's sort of your creative process behind, I guess, producing fashion? And I guess, how do you sort of like what inspires you about Palestine as the creative director of Noel? I love this question. Thank you for asking it. I think that my creative process is deeply rooted in nostalgia, both personal nostalgia and I love this phrase, historical nostalgia. So I am going to really quickly just read you what historical nostalgia means. I found it in this interview with Dr. Christine Bachow, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. She's a professor of psychology and she defines historical nostalgia as an emotional attachment to or longing for times and history that predate our own birth. It's more likely triggered by dissatisfaction with the present, end quote, which I love. I love, I love because in Palestine, for me personally, I'm obsessed with our past. Generations, which I, you know, obviously was not present in, architecture that comes from a different time, fashion, textile heritage, history, I was never there to experience any of it, but yet I am obsessed with it and trying to revive it. So as is the case with much of the world, you know, our worlds today look so different than they did for previous generations. And in the case of Palestine, these changes aren't necessarily all organic, but instead they're a result of Israeli policies and practices to essentially mutilate and ultimately erase Palestine, right? So for me, I understand these changes through architecture and fashion. I spend so much time visiting centuries old Palestinian homes and trying to imagine a world in which they were, they weren't abandoned, they weren't destroyed, but they were full of life. And most of the homes now are actually abandoned, which is quite sad, but I, this also extends to textile history and how fashion looks different for my grandparents than it does for us. And when I'm thinking about all of this and trying to revive it and trying to understand why these changes happened and how they happened under the way of settler colonialism and occupation, I'm fascinated with trying to understand that world. So that's the creative process for me. I know on your website, one of the things that's mentioned, and I know you mentioned in terms of looking at production and connecting people, is that there is a sense of interconnectedness to fashion in the supply chain and production. And I was wondering, and it might be a loose analogy, but how do you use, I guess, social media then to also interconnect and spread the organizational message? 
Social media is sort of a double-edged sword. It's this very bittersweet reality that uh, rooted peoples have to navigate because on the one hand, it's a great tool, right? We have these platforms, we can, we can build our vision, share our vision and connect with other creatives that, are, that also share that vision and, and, and build these beautiful projects together. I've met so many incredible people that I never would have met if it wasn't for Instagram. And I'm grateful for that. On the other hand, we can't deny the existence of this inherently racist algorithm, right? We can't deny that so many of our favorite pages have been shadow banned or even, you know, just taken off Instagram altogether. So it does, and you know, of course, for, for nothing, right? Besides doing anything but speaking up about the issues affecting affecting your people or people that you're allied with. And, and that's a sad reality. It is, I want to say social media is, you know, is the tool for us to connect, but it's also trying to navigate that reality as well. It's kind of a bittersweet thing. I just guess going off that sort of partnering with other organizations, how important is it for NOL to partner with other fashion brands within the Arab world? It's so important. It's so important. There, I don't believe in competition. I, I think there's so, no, I know there's so much room for all of us to succeed in this world and for all the world to receive all these incredible Palestinian creatives. So it makes more sense to me that we work together, especially when our work is so much more beautiful, when it's the product of like a collective creative process, right? We, we have so much more to offer to the world and to our communities and to ourselves when we work together. So that was part of it. And then another part of it is like, how successful are you, right, if you are extending your hand to pull others around you up? For, for me, it was like, okay, if I really want to consider myself growing in the world as a creative, the only way for me to, to feel that is even remotely true is to make sure I'm, I'm doing it with my community. So going back to intersectional feminism, I think there's a sort of very narrow mind of view of what feminism is in the West. And we're only starting to sort of talk about it more and understanding, especially intersectional feminism more. So I was wondering for you and your organization, what does intersectional feminism look like? I love this question because I have had such a long and it's an ongoing journey with feminism and what that means you know if you asked me three years ago what feminism means my answer would have been so different as it should have been right if your answer is the same as it was when you were younger or like even last week you're not challenging yourself enough you're not growing you know I spent the last few years after I launched this collective reading 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 listening to leaders in the community right understanding oh wait a minute I don't have the full picture how how can I be a better feminist, right? How can I be comfortable using that word? And intersectionality, I think, is, is the root of that. All of these issues are, are, are interconnected, right? So for you to be a true feminist, you've got to understand the way all of these systems that are oppressing us are actually working together, right? So if, if the systems are working together to oppress us, your means of resistance or your ideology, right, has to reflect that nature has to equally be interconnected. It has to be aware of climate change disproportionately affects rooted peoples. You have to be aware of the way capitalism disproportionately affects rooted peoples. If you're a feminist, you have to make sure that you're including LGBTQIA. You have to be sure that your feminism extends to women of rooted communities. So for me, it's, it's after I've read so much and I've understood 
the nature of intersectional feminism. I've, we've tried and are continuously like restructuring our work and our mission and our vision to properly reflect that. And I think that's an interesting point to ask this question from, because when you talk about the overlapping forces of oppression and the multiple ways that all of these are interconnected, one thing I found very empowering when I was reading about um, your collective is it talks about fashion and art as being defiant and an act of defiance. I just wanted to know when you do have all of these complex forces and when you're talking about how you restructure your organisation, what are the considerations that you make in your creative and productive process to consciously make your art and fashion defiant? As I mentioned before, I dig into the past. I am obsessed with the knowledge of our generations, of our previous generations, of our ancestors, and the way those the knowledge, the practices, the techniques of, of our ancestors have largely been threatened or even pushed to the edge of extinction under, under the weight of settler colonialism and industrialization and time. There, it's an act of defiance to, first of all, actively try to learn this knowledge, to dig it up from the archives, right? To, to interview people who have this knowledge and yet it's not recorded, you know? to actively try to understand all of that and then to, sh to bring it into the public sphere, right? To start storytelling with the little bits of knowledge that you're gaining here and there, and then to try and reflect it in your work in a way that, that does shed light on those practices and why, why they look the way they do today. That seems to me like an act of defiance, right? When the, when the occupier is actively working to erase these things and you're actively working to bring them back into the world, that's a pretty empowering thing. And I think leaning on from that as well is one of the things that you mentioned is that you consciously want to highlight the long tradition of women as passer downs of culture and practices inherent to Palestine. And mm. one thing I think I'm especially conscious of is like, how do... Or how would you describe the importance of understanding culture, especially in contention with Western portrayals of what feminism means? I love this question. You know, it immediately, immediately makes me think of Nawala Sadawi. If you don't know her, she's just just uh, such a badass. I, you can bleep that out if you have to. Uh, Egyptian feminist doctor. She really paved the way for so many of us today. I mean, she's amazing. And she writes about this, but she writes about the fact that we need to shift our understanding of feminism away from this universal, this universality that is actually so dangerous, right? Because it implies if there's a universal feminism or a universal truth, it implies that inherently someone the global north is right and then the rest of us are wrong and right and so we need to understand the subjectivity the the hyper locality of of feminism and in, and in the case of palestine i think i've i've heard it argued that as as women are deemed the vessels and the custodians of cultural knowledge that that isn't fair right but i actually think that's a point of power right feminism or fashion is deemed so inherently frivolous. Anything having to do with clothing and creative process is deemed frivolous when it's produced by women, right? But that's not the case. It has such an immense power. It is an honor to be, to be 
a vessel to be able to pass down these things and safeguard them, especially in a world that is actively trying to erase these things. And not just that, I mean, it is a source of political power, of resistance. You know, back in the day during the Intifada, when Israel banned the Palestinian flag and women started embroidering actually embroidering the Palestinian flag into their dresses, into their gowns. This is an act of defiance. This is political resistance, right? And if that's not feminism, I don't know what is. Now, throughout like throughout our conversation so far, you've mentioned some inspirational Arab women, the books that you've read and the details that you've sort of heard. And I was wondering if you could just share with our audience, what are some resources that you would ask them to go to? This is so hard. <laughs> Uh, because there's so many and I also don't want to limit it obviously read Arab read work by Arab women um, but also read work by women of deeply rooted communities in general you know what I'm saying because these women are drawing the parallels between our struggles Angela Davis great example start with you can start with her if you want and then you can move on to Nawala Saadawi also a great feminist I, I feel hesitant to to be uh, creating a list because I really don't want to leave anyone out. But if you're really interested in reads, head over to the Node Collective page. I have a whole highlight of like books that I read that I just highly recommend as a point of departure. Do you have any- But read, read, read and amplify the work, share it, amplify it. And do you have any Instagram accounts? Maybe some feminists might use that people could learn from? Absolutely. You know what? Go follow Because We've Read. If you're not familiar with it, this is a uh, initiative started by Iranian-American activist Huda Khatibi. She She's just so incredible. Hi, Huda. I hope, you, <laughs> I hope you're doing well. And so she was in an interview on television and the reporter told her, well, you don't sound American. And she responded, it's because I've read. And this gave way to this international group of of chapters you know chapter for each city you know from delhi all the way to chicago organized by communities of units of reading depending on what's going on in the world and it's so intersectional and it's inherently feminist and it's inherently everything you know right now they just launched i think one of the chapters just launched a year-long unit on transcultural black solidarity from the perspective of the black community in Iran, which is so fascinating. So that's a great way to start reading. Head over and join the Because We've Read chapter. How about I'll be reading next? This podcast is produced by Amnesty International Australia, hosted by Vince Boulding and Denise Minow. Edited by Max Lowe and researched by Alec Muir, Alex Kelly and Billy Fett.